So today is the uh, 7th of May. We're going to start the second lesson on the title of this lesson is The Significance of Our Thoughts. And it's fair to ask, what are we thinking about? And so I, I thought that was a humorous way to, to, uh, to start gathering the momentum of the scriptures as, as they relate to the process of thinking. So I hope in the last class you guys were able to see that it's at face value without a, without a great deal of analysis. Meditation, and whatever that is, we haven't defined meditation yet. We don't, we don't know what meditation is so far. It's important, and it's referenced in many different ways throughout both the Old and the New Testament. So it's a concept that requires um, us to, to deal with it head on. And I think it's, it's safe to conclude that in this constellation of words surrounding meditation, that God expects his people to be a thinking people. He expects us to be a thinking people, a people of thought. So let's start off with a survey on how does he, how does he think about our thinking and how does he think about our thoughts? Let's see what, what does the Bible say about this topic. And this is a random assortment of things. We're going to run through them. I've got a few slides. And what I want you to focus on is not so much the content and trying to organize all this. This isn't meant to organize. This is meant to overwhelm. This is meant to say, hey, there's a lot going on in the scriptures in terms of thinking. So how many different ways... Uh, could we describe the state of mind? It's an interesting thought by itself, the state of our mind, let alone its content. Uh, so if, if one of these references seems interesting or you've got a thought about it, just blurt it out. And let's go on and see what we can, uh, we can see about this. So in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your whole mind. Now, isn't that interesting? That there's an emphasis on the totality of our mind being dedicated. Mark three twenty one. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Kind of interesting that someone might be in his mind and someone might be out of his mind. In Mark five fifteen, then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. So here's this guy is now found in his right mind, and seeing this, they were afraid. Acts 14, 2 tells us, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds. You can have a poisoned mind. In Acts 17... We read about those who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Fair-minded. Romans one twenty-eight, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, whatever that is, to do the things which are not fitting. And also evil-mindedness. Another way of describing what's going on in our heads. Let's look at a few more here. Romans 8, verse 6. To be carnally minded 
is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So we find two other descriptions of how our minds might be positioned or in what kind of state they would it can exist. Romans 15, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded, that you can have the same way of thinking as others, according to Christ Jesus. How about uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 13? For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, for we are of a sound mind. It is for you, a sound mind. Seems like a really good thing to have. 2 Corinthians 8, 19, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered to us by the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. So here's a ready mind. Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Being lowly in mind. Colossians 2.18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Paul says we have carnal minds, we also have fleshly minds. Let's take a look. We've got one more set here. 2 Thessalonians 2.2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And in 1 Timothy 3, 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. In 1 Timothy 6, 5, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a mean and means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. James 1, 8, he's a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. In 2 Peter 3, 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Well, the whole point of this quick survey of just through the Old Testament is to give us some sense that the description, the state of our mind is obviously of some import in the scriptures. It's discussed in many different ways, lots of adjectives being used there. And there are some that refer to the content of our thoughts. Sometimes it bleeds over into describing what, our, what we might call our heart is like. But I find that this is interesting. And in order for any of it to, me, to make sense, you've really got to be a thinking individual. That's the point I'm bringing today, that the significance of our thoughts, that there are lots of ways the scriptures depict the state of our mind and how it relates to the state of our soul and such. But there's no escape from the prospect that we are a thinking people. So let's get into the meat of it. That was just a quick survey. The Bible says a lot about our thoughts, and they have a lot of language to describe various aspects of it. I want to look at um, about three or four of them today. And Mark 17 or Mark 7 through 17 through 23, we have some clear language in Scripture about the sinfulness of our thoughts. It says, When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning a parable about the, what goes into a man, how it defiles him. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? 
because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Evil thoughts proceed out of the heart of man. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. For all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, that list of sins, I don't think anybody would look at that and brush that aside as sort of social gaffes or mere peccadillos. You look at this, murder, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, an evil eye, whatever that is, foolishness. These are all very serious things, but he lists in there evil thoughts. Evil thoughts are something that come out of a person. And he says this is a terrible thing to have. So evil thoughts. God doesn't want our thoughts to be evil. Well, let's look at another sin. Futile thoughts. This one, I think, is, is pretty important, but important in different ways. So evil thinking uh, is certainly one concerning idea we need to understand and take a look at. But, there, but this characteristic of futility of thought is dangerous in a different way. So in 1 Corinthians 3, we see, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. God's interested in people's thoughts. He knows the thoughts of the wise. And his conclusion, they're futile. The thinking of this group of people. Over here we find the thinking to be evil thoughts. And these folks over here, these men who purport to be wise, their thoughts, they're futile. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So here we have an idea of futility, a darkened understanding, ignorance. These are all sins and conditions of thought, just the way we think about things. Now, there is a remedy to it. We, can, we see in verse 20, um, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So there is a remedy available to us to put on this new way of thinking. But you can see there's a categorical description here that the way of the Gentiles, the sum of their thoughts, futile. Futility. So let's talk about that for a minute because that 
encompasses a large group of people. So what do you think Paul is getting at by describing thoughts as futile? What are futile thoughts? What comes to mind? Thoughts where someone's deceived so that their worldview, uh, that their thinking operates within, is useless, leads to wrong conclusions, causes calamity, disasters, strife. Sure, yeah. That's a good idea. What else? People embrace as a solution to a problem something that just aggravates the problem, makes it worse. You know, I, I think in terms of socialism, you know, they're all worried about the economic disparity, but it's like in socialistic countries, there's a huge amount of economic disparity, far more than in capitalistic ones, because there's a spectrum in capitalism. Socialism, it's just boom. Okay. What else? Yeah. Jesus talks about don't lay up your treasures on earth where they'll rust and be destroyed and be lost. Lay up your treasures in heaven. He also talks about you know, gain the whole world and lose your soul. So that would be futile thinking. So many of those things where you're right. treasuring the things of the earth because they won't last. Sure. To gain power and, and, and those sorts of things to the exclusion of a relationship with God. Yeah, so laying up for, your tre- for yourself treasures would be an act of futility when you could be laying up treasures in heaven instead. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yep. Any other thoughts on this wide swath of description here for Gentile thinking? I want to hone in on one specific aspect of this so that we... Um, we make sure we get what I think is the emphasis of what the scriptures are describing, and especially in this passage here in Ephesians. But let's ask the question, do the Gentiles lack the ability to be useful in their thinking with regard to what we might broadly say the arts and logic? Is that what Jesus is, or is that what Paul is getting at here? That the Gentiles, in the futility of their mind, are incapable of being productive in arts and logic. I, I use that term just to be all-encompassing. You, I got somebody shaking their head back there. You think that's, is that true or false, Dan? Uh, I doubt that's, I doubt that's what he has in view. I mean, there's, Why is, it, why is the path that leads to destruction? There's a lot of smart people in heaven. There is a lot of smart people. Yeah. Right. And since, if you think of the, uh, the Parthenon that the Greeks made with all their little mathematical things and all that, they put a whole lot of effort and probably a huge amount of expense into that. Uh, but they're honoring false gods. They... And in the end, it just kind of got destroyed. Parts of it were not written. So, do you have a comment? Oh, I certainly people could be productive in the arts and logic at some level. Still, in the, in the end, right? It's all right. It's all it's all nothing. That doesn't mean they don't create create art. 
Did Martin Luther say the devil has all the best music? <laughs> <laughs> So you see, there's a when we think about this futility of mind. Uh, while it is true, there are lots of bad ideas that have produced detrimental results for mankind. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's getting at that their thinking is pointless. Their thinking isn't going to arrive at its designated end, and that's that's the question we're going to get after. What's the point of all this? What, what kind of thinking should be embraced? What kind of significance should our thoughts have if it's, if it's only to keep us from making societal mistakes, then we're not thinking about this the right way. So clearly, the Gentiles have much to offer and much insight. Dan? No, I just, the whole property is to a man to gain the whole world and to his soul and Futility, the book of Ecclesiastes comes to mind. There's a whole book about futility. You know, the whole world and yet realizing it's all completely pointless. Right. So, I mean, basically what you just said as well, when you see this picture concretely given right there in the scriptures, that this is useless, it is futile, it is completely meaningless. You can have a great Parthenon, you can have all kinds of amazing technology, but pointless. Yeah. You know, when, when the mind is used to that end, but there is no power of the Spirit there, and there is no, uh, it's not whole with God. That's right. And, and, and it's true that much of the thinking of the Gentiles does bring glory to God. But they're not bringing glory to God in the process of their thoughts because the totality of their thoughts are all geared toward an end that is not correct. So let's stand back for just a second and think about this idea because it's, it's the primacy of our thought is what we're approaching in this larger topic of meditation. And think back to the garden. Everybody is made in the image of God. Everybody is. Nobody is not made in the image of God. All people are. And Adam and Eve were possessed with sound minds. We want to use one of the adjectives we looked at earlier. They had a sound mind. They had righteousness. They, they had lots of things, but they had sound thinking. They were rational beings. They were thinking individuals. Now, we were more than that, but that's at least what they were. We can, we're just emphasizing that, not excluding all other things. We're more than just thinking beings, but we are thinking beings. But if your thinking is futile, it means it's useless in this relationship before God. It doesn't matter what else you're contemplating. It's useless in his eyes. It's useless in the relationship with him. He made you to think about him. That's the problem the Gentiles have. They do not have God as the center or the end or the object of their thoughts. So this idea of futile thinking is illustrated a few times in the scriptures. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but it... I think if you can capture the picture being presented, you'll, it'll resonate, I hope, at a deeper level. So can you think of how God might represent feudal thinking uh, in our world? Is there, is there something that comes to mind that, as an illustration, we're going to look at it, but I'm curious to see what your thoughts are about it right now. 
spiritual than mental, but I think I can create this idol out of wood or stone and then bow down to it as if it made me. He paints the picture of just stupidity or absurdity of it. He, he does paint that as absurd, absolutely does. And, and the word stupid is used to describe those types of acts. But I, I think God gives us another example that is probably a good one for us, uh, us being societally today to think about. Uh, and that is kind of lesser thinking beings that might be around us. Um, and what I'm referring to are animals, beasts as lesser thinking individuals. Now, we're not going to spend our time discussing to what extent do animals think. Are, are they purely instinctive? Well, yeah, there's obviously instinctive, but this isn't a class on the scope of the broadness of where animals think. But I don't think anybody uh, wonders whether cattle, and certainly if you've ever run cattle or been around them or the hogs or horses or something, you think... You know, I bet he's thinking about algebra right now. Nobody thinks that way, right? I mean, nobody, nobody really believes that. But there are, there are some ways in which people are described as thinking like animals. And so Job says, why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? Well, it's, it's not because animals are just a little slower than us, right? That's not the point. It's that they're, they're acting in a non-thinking way, where the thinking that you have is futile instead of being productive toward God. Peter has an example as well in in 2 Peter 2. He says, but these, and he's thinking about um, wicked men and judgment, but when he's describing the wickedness of men and judgment, he describes it, he says, these like natural brute beasts are made to be caught and destroyed. They speak evil of things they do not understand and utterly perish in their own corruption. He describes them to be animal-like. He gives this analogy for them. And another one that that I thought, uh, well, we see Psalm 49 in here as well. Uh, A man who's without honor does not understand. And how do we see, he's like a beast that perish. It's it's clear the Bible depicts, it's just an animal over here. He doesn't have the thinking power of a person. He wasn't made in the image of God. And I was, I was struck by thinking about one of my favorite kings in the Old Testament, King Nebi, in Daniel 4. He had an interesting life. Uh, you've got to wonder what his biographers wanted to write about. But the biblical biographer, when he writes about him, says something kind of interesting about the trouble he got himself in. So it says in, in Daniel chapter 4, I'm just going to read a few excerpts here, that uh, all this... All this judgment came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning the king. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And then at the end of all this, Nebuchadnezzar recounts what had gone wrong. And he says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. My reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor, my splendor returned to me. So he was still king when all these things happened. But during the midst of this, he was able to recognize that it was my reason that had gone out the window. Kind of an interesting depiction. You'd think, well, I got a better diet. I wasn't eating acorns and grass. That would have been a good thing. But Nebuchadnezzar describes this great judgment God brought upon him as a loss of reason. 
And in essence, he became futile in his thinking as well. So the futility of thinking is is not something we use to disparage an individual that they're dumb and ignorant and they don't know their arts or their logic. The futility of thinking is a life given to thinking about something other than God. God made us to think about him. And the scriptures say, if you're not going to do that, you're just taking up space. Your thoughts are futile. That's how, that's how remote bad thinking is. The sum in total of all of your brain activity, if you are a Gentile, God says it's pointless. It's not just evil or you did something destructive. Those are bad things, but you know, Christians do dumb things, right? So it's not the detrimental effects of societal harm that concerns us. It's a life given to pointless mental endeavors. God said, I want you to think about me. Does that make sense? Does that resonate with you guys? Is that, is that helpful? Okay, let's take a look at a couple things. We're going to have to speed up a little bit. Um, got, still got lots to cover. So we've got a situation on our hands. You think, well, that may have been the Old Testament. They're the ones compared to animals. I say, well, Peter does the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, but when you when you look at um, when you look at part of the reason Jesus came, I was I was struck by this in Luke two, verses thirty three to 30, thirty five. The encounter when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus in and Simeon meets them. Uh, you know he he's he's got this interesting thing that he does and and. God had promised he wouldn't die before he saw the Christ. And you got to imagine this guy's holding this small baby. And Joseph and Mary already have a life filled with wonder, trying to figure out what's going on. But the description that Simeon brings about Jesus is kind of interesting. It says, Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. Jesus came to discern people's thoughts. Wow. Uh, That brings it close to home. That was one of the things for which he came to Israel, that he might understand and reveal our thoughts. You might think in a class where we see all these descriptions, I, don't, I didn't count them, uh, but that earlier survey where we think of people being of sound mind, think of people being out of his mind. There are other adjectives. I don't know what other adjectives you guys might think of. I've heard things like a frenetic mind or a frenzied mind a racing mind, lots of adjectives we use to describe what goes on in our heads, right? Uh, if you have any other adjectives, we'd be happy to listen to those. Uh, the scriptures spend time talking about these things. And then you think of this warning about our thoughts being evil. They proceed from us. And it's in a class of sins, such as adulteries and murder. Uh, you think, wow, what goes on in your head? can rise to that occasion. I don't think he's saying that evil thoughts might cause you to commit murder. That's why you don't want evil thoughts. No, I think he's saying 
There's a class of sins. Evil thoughts are in that list, as well as murders and the evil eye and other things that are going on. So evil thoughts seem to be condemned in the harshest possible way. And then you think of the futility of your mind. You think of how would you like the sum total of all of your mental achievements in life to simply be classified as futile on the last great day. It's hard to imagine. Go back over this last week and think about how many things you thought about. I don't know how you would do that, but you could reflect on your thoughts over the last week. And are they in the futile camp? Was your mind a racing mind? Was it frenetic? Were you out of your mind? Were you of a sound mind? Were you like-minded? Were you of one mind? Were you any of those things? We've got lots of descriptions. And you come to realize that our minds are really important because it keeps us, in many ways, from being beasts. That's the picture. It's us or cattle. That's the significance of our mind. And God is interested in our thoughts. So you might think when we come to Jesus revealing thoughts, the evil-mindedness, the futility of your mind, all is lost. But all is not lost. That's not the way it was. Refer you back to that passage in Ephesians when he says that we can have our thoughts ordered the right way. There's a benefit there. But there's something else that I think we want to come to. And that's the sweetness of our thoughts. There's a weird reference to meditation in Psalm 104 that I want to look at. It's kind of an odd prayer. There's a couple ways to look at it. We'll spend a little bit of time here. And it says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Right here in the middle, we've got this idea that may my meditation be sweet to him. Now, we've looked at, uh, I think, uh, a large enough assortment and weight of scriptures to show us how bad things can get. But have you ever thought, have you ever wondered when God thinks of your thinking, when he sees your thinking, he says, now that's sweet. Is that something you think about? The sweetness of your thoughts before God. This meditation that the psalmist is offering here, I think fits that. I think it's something that has to be contended with. There's a few people, we got a little trouble with the adjective, trying to figure out, does it say, may my meditation be sweet to him? Some people think maybe pleasing is a better word, or maybe it says, may my meditation of him be sweet. I think either way, what he's getting at is the opposite of this futility of mind. It's a mind spent in an activity that is sweet because it's thinking of something sweet. It's thinking of God himself and how rich and good and kind and loving and merciful and gracious and wise and powerful all of those things being wound up in our thoughts. And the psalmist, who's talking about the earth trembling, touches the hills. There were wildfires yesterday on I-35. I, I saw them on both sides of I-35. And the smoke was everywhere. And thinking about these 
grandiose plans and cares of providence, the hills smoking, the psalmist stops and says, may my thoughts of him be sweet. God thinks of your thinking. And he says it can be sweet. So I'm wondering if you guys uh, believe this. This is a hard thing to believe, especially if you've had a hard mental week, if the thoughts have not been as ordered as you would like. Do you believe it's possible that when you sit down and you think that God might think this is sweet? And this idea of it being sweet is not some sickly notion that we would, syrupy might think of today, uh, hallmark cards and other things. It's a it's a theme that runs throughout Scripture and Malachi. We'll look at just a couple of verses here in Malachi three. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. It can have the idea of being delightful, even sweet. Think about Proverbs fifteen here. The sacrifice of the wicked. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. It's his delight. It's not just accepted. There's no reluctance. It's his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. I don't think this idea is, this is a, Proverbs 15 is a, is a, a parallel uh, contrasting proverb, the way they categorize those things. So you get the prayer, the upright being is delight, and he loves him who follows righteousness, or he who follows righteousness is loved. You could probably state it either way. And the idea that God would look on his people and say, this is sweet, is one that is communicated all through the Bible. We see it here in Malachi. We see it in Proverbs. We see it at the end of the Bible in Revelation 5. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of, bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of God's people. Now, What's the point of, of likening or comparing the prayers of God's people to incense? Well, the incense that Israel was commanded to offer was always a sweet incense. It was always something that was sweet. So we look at, um, well, we're not going to go through all those verses. Um, The comparison between what the Pentateuch has to say about incense and offerings being a delight, being sweet, and over here in the book of Revelation, comparing our prayers to that said incense, that should not be lost on you. Your prayers, your thoughts, your meditations, your contemplations, your ponderings, your musings, your mutterings, your singings, are all sweet before God because of the great work that Christ has done to free us from futile thinking. That is sweet. To know that not only is all not lost, but everything is on the right track in Christ. Your thinking, especially of him, is vitally important. So I want to look at one more reference and describe why as we've laid the groundwork for understanding meditation, I hope this familiar passage will be seen in a new light. Uh, you can have a right mind, you can have a sound mind, a wise mind, a settled mind, 
This is all things we should endeavor after. These are gifts of God. It's a gift that can be abused. We've seen it with the, uh, the Gentiles. But it's also a means by which we can enjoy God. And here is the battleground of the Christian life, is what's going on in your head. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And Paul says this is the end. And how does this work? By going after arguments, going after ideas, going after strongholds, going after contrary thoughts and pulling them down to bring them into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our life would what? So we'd obey him. And what's the one way we're going to see that obedience start? With meditation and right thinking. We begin this process. Now, we've, this has been, the last week and this week have been very much focused on the thinking aspect of the Christian life. And that's good. And you might say, you know, Dave, that sounds easy for you. Um, I don't want to say who did it, but I will say to sort of help in this description, one of my children, actually one of my daughters, one of my daughters once said you know dad you should be proud you might be the world's only living heart donor the only living heart donor (laughs) all this talk about the mind what are we getting at here there's more to life than the mind and let me say there is so stop right there stop right there What did you hear me say about man as a thinking being? Is he only a thinking being? Does he have a heart, soul, will, affection, desire, body, etc.? Well, sure. He's got all this. And more. He's a complex being with many facets. But it begins in the mind. It begins in the mind to influence all of those other areas of our life, our desires, our bodies, our hearts, our souls. But begins in the mind so that we are not Gentiles and we are not brute beasts. And we have to take these thoughts captive. And that is done through the practice of meditation. Now we're going to look at how meditation, we're going to get a definition finally next week of what meditation is. And, but I, my hope was that these first two lessons would help us understand the importance of getting this right. So we'll, we'll start next week with learning exactly what is meditation and how do we go about doing it and how do we spot false meditation when it presents itself. What questions do you have? Or comments, thoughts? Isn't that a hard thing? That is a hard thing to believe, isn't it? God thinks about our thoughts, and he's happy about it. Yeah.
Bruce? I like the, the hopeful aspect there that you brought out. I've always liked Colossians 3. It uh, talks there about putting on a new man who is renewed in knowledge. Renewed in knowledge. The corruption of our mind is, is part of sin, but there's, uh, there's hope that we are renewed. But there's an active side to that. It says put on the new man. And earlier it says set your mind on the things above. Symbolo. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. What other thoughts you guys have? Regarding the, oh, thoughts are sweet and all that, that to the Lord, Lord and the, you know, it, compare it to uh, parents going to see their children's play and all that uh, in the theater, and they're not going because the kids are any good at acting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... Are there any children in here? They, they may not be aware of that. <laughs> right. And in this case, our prayers are actually good because of the intercession of Christ. And our thoughts are good because of the intercession of Christ. So, three cheers for that. What else? What's on your mind? 